All right, so good morning, everyone. Everyone good? You should be because it's a new day, and a new day means new mercies, new mercies. So um, if you have your Bible with you, and I always hope you do, just go ahead and open up to the book of Acts. It's in the New Testament, fifth book of the New Testament, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 this morning as we continue our series that we've uh, entitled Ships. Um, and so here is just by way of reminder uh, for some of us a little summary, and because uh, it's too much to explain, there's not enough time to explain, so I'm just going to do a little summary. And then uh, if you're with us for the first time in this series, this will kind of catch you up on what on what we're doing. So, a ship is designed to do a specific work, like it exists for a specific job. So, a ship is meant to go from port A to port B. And while it goes from port A to port B, it's meant to transport cargo. So people, equipment, supplies, or whatnot, right? It's meant to do a job. And so for a ship to do those three thi- those things, three things are required. Displacement has to take place. Uh, there needs also to be navigation, and there needs to be propulsion. So displacement has to happen. Displacement refers to pushing water aside. So that the ship doesn't sink. If it doesn't push enough water out of the way in order to compensate for its weight, it sinks. So for a ship to do what it's supposed to do, it's got to displace water. A ship also needs navigation. you got to know where you are in the water and which way you're supposed to be going. So you need navigation and you also need propulsion. Because so what if you can float? And so what if you know where to get to? But if you can't get there because you don't have propulsion, you're just dead in the water. So all three are needed. So there are different kinds of propulsion that a ship can use to get from port A to port B. You can have propellers or propellers, depending on where you are in the country. Um, there's that you got a, a caterpillar drive, according to the Hunt for Red October. Basically, it's a jet for the water, electromagneto, hydration, something drive. I don't know what it is. Anyway, or you could uh, use the kind of propulsion that real sailors use, which is what? The wind, to use the wind in order to, to, to get where you're supposed to get to. So here's the thing about a sailboat. It's pretty obvious that you can go in the direction that the wind is blowing, right? When the wind's at your back, sailing's pretty easy. Just point that way and you go. But what if the wind is a front wind? What if it's coming at you as, as a headwind? So is it possible to go from port A to port B if the wind is coming from the direction of port B? Well, yes, you can actually navigate what's called windward in nautical terminology, me being the sailor expert that I am, right? Like, you can actually go in a windward direction against the wind. And and the way that 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 happens I did some research, so, you know, I don't know about these things, so I had to look this up. The reason why is because a sail on a sailboat is shaped on purpose like the wing of an airplane. So this is one of these bizarre things. Like, I've never understood how can a plane actually fly because you got tons that get up in the air. Well, the reason why is because of the shape of the wings. So as air travels over the top surface of the wing, it has to go further from this front edge to this back edge. The wind traveling underneath travels a shorter distance than the wind traveling above the, the wing. 
that difference in how far the wind travels on either side creates a difference in pressure. Low pressure versus high pressure, and that's what gives the plane lift. It's the exact same thing in a sailboat. Because the, the, the sail is shaped the same way that a, a wing on a plane is, it's an airfoil. So if you go against the wind, it's traveling further on this side than on this side, and it actually inflates the sail perpendicular to the wind. It's actually, it's just, it's just physics. It's really neat how it actually works. So it is possible that even though the wind is coming from that direction, I can actually go that way so long as my boat is angled the right way. I can go against the wind and get where I'm supposed to get to. So I think it's helpful, at least for the sake of the series, to use the analogy of a ship like for us to think of ourselves individually as individual ships. God created us for a job in this world, to, to do specific work in this world. We are to get from port A to port B in this life, to go in a certain direction toward an ultimate destination. And while we go from port A to port B, we're to carry precious cargo. So it is help, like maybe just our hands and feet are help serving someone, or maybe it's financial assistance, or just carrying the gospel, transporting the gospel to people who need to know about Jesus. Well, for those things to be true of us, for us to be a good ship, three things are needed. Displacement, navigation, and propulsion. So, as a ship, we've got to displace sin. We need to push sin away so that the sin doesn't cause us to sink. With me? All right. And we also need navigation. You need to know which way to go. Well, that's where God comes in. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in, us listening to the Lord and let him be our guide and our leader in this life, pointing us in the right direction. And we need propulsion. We absolutely need propulsion. We need something to cause us to go in the right direction. So in this series, so again, to use the ship's illustration, right, for us to be the good ship, that God wants us to be, we're looking at the different ships of the Bible. Partnership, fellowship, hardship, worship. Two weeks ago, we talked about stewardship. Last week, we talked about discipleship. These are the different ships of the Bible and that we as an individual ship, if we, if we adopt those disciplines into our life, we will be the ship that God wants us to be. And today, we're talking about leadership. Everyone's favorite topic. Leadership. How often does this one come up in a church? Not very often. Not very often. Now, I'm going to say this. I, I do believe that this is factual. I have read more books on the specific topic of leadership than any other topic. And part of the reason for that is that my doctorate work is actually about leadership. So I've read more books than I care to ever read in my life, let alone about one topic, just on that. And I've come to this conclusion. So in my humble but accurate conclusion, I've arrived at this. Most of what is written and said on the topic of leadership is half-baked. It's, it's not helpful. It's not instructive. It's probably more confusing uh, than anything else. It kind of sort of sounds right. Um, it, it looks good on a bumper sticker, 
right? But it really ultimately isn't worth the vinyl adhesive that it's printed on. If you really dive into it, what's it really saying? Does it really helpful? Is it practical? Is it pragmatic? Is it even biblical or whatnot? So I, I think there's just a lot of stuff floating around that does not help us to be leaders or to develop and grow in leadership. Uh, I think there's a lot of little weird definitions. Again, they're pithy. They look good on Facebook, but then you just kind of look under the hood a little bit. It's like, ah, I'm not sure that's really accurate or helpful. So how about this? Just throwing it out there. What if we look at the Bible and see what it says about leadership? That might be a good place to start, right? So let's look at what Scripture says. So uh, before we get to Acts 6, I do want to point this out. The Bible's definition of leadership is being a helmsman. A helmsman, the person who steers the ship, is what a helmsman is. So in 1 Corinthians 12, there is a list of the different roles within a church. There's a listing of different spiritual gifts that are given among Christians. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 28... It refers to the gift of administrating. It's the word that's used there in the English, right? The gift of administrating, which is an unfortunate, an unfortunate translation of what is actually happening in the original Greek language that the Apostle Paul wrote that text in. Because to our English ears, when we hear the gift of administrating, to us it sounds like it's the gift of of filing paperwork. The gift of making spreadsheets, which is a nice talent and a skill to have in this day, but that is not what the word means. So in the original Greek that that was written in, the most literal translation of the word is helmsmaning, being a helmsman, being a person who can steer a ship. That is leadership, guiding the ship. Guiding it. So being the person that can know where the winds are coming from, what direction are the winds coming, which direction are we trying to get to, and rigging the sails in such a way so that you can get to where you're supposed to get to. That's leadership. Being a helmsman, rigging the sails. And actually, Act 6 helps us to know how we rig the sails. All right. So in Act 6, let's kind of walk down a few of these verses. Verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So this is very, very, very early in the life of the New Testament church. This is not long after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus and it's, you know, in the text, especially if you read the first few chapters of the books of Act, a book of Acts, like the church is growing by leaps and bounds. In Acts 1, the church in Jerusalem is about 120 people. When you get to Acts chapter 4, it, it says there's 5,000 men in the church. That's just the men. That doesn't include the women and the children. So easily in Acts 4, it's at least 15,000 people in the church in Jerusalem, at least. So then you get to chapter 5, you get into Acts chapter 6. It tells us that the church continues to grow. And what happens when you have growth? You have growing pains. Well, that's what's happening here in in the church. There's a, a problem that arose among the Christians in the church in Jerusalem, which does not happen these days. 
unfortunately. Like, there's never any problems among Christians in a church. Like, we have evolved way beyond such things, you know. I do have the gift of sarcasm. So, anyway, there, there's a problem that arose there in the church. And specifically, something's going on with the widows who are Hellenists. So, if you don't know what that means, a Hellenist back then was a, a Greek-speaking person. Just someone who spoke Greek. So there were people in the church, there's a whole contingency in the church that were more Greek speakers. That's the Hellenists. So they had a complaint against the Hebrews, which happened to be people who were born in Palestine, or what we would call Israel, who were Jewish, ethnically speaking, who had converted to Christianity. So within the church in Jerusalem, you have Greek speakers and you have Jews, former Jews, all coming together as this new people called the church. Well, the complaint is that the Hellenist widows were not getting a portion of the daily distribution of food, which was a problem because in the first century in particular, it, it was difficult on a widow to how she's going to make ends meet, how she's going to get food, etc. So the church needed to step out, step up to help provide food for everyone who was in need, including these widows. But unfortunately, sin reared its ugly head like it so often does. And so there was a bit of discrimination or neglect from one side toward the other. So some widows, if you were from this part of the, the church, got food, and then some weren't. Like, these Hellenist ladies just weren't getting the meal trains. So they should have gotten the meal trains just like everyone else. So justifiably so, the Hellenists raise a complaint. And they bring it to the leaders of the church. They bring it to the apostles. And so in verse 2, we see their response. It says, the 12, which refers to the apostles, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem there, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. So their, their point is, you know what, there is a problem here and someone needs to fix it. Someone needs to address it. It just can't be us. It can't be us because they understood that their God-given responsibility and duty on earth was to preach the Bible teach the gospel, share that, be missional, evangelist. They had to do that, so they didn't want to compromise the task that God had given to them by being part of this, this setting up this care ministry for, for the widows. So they come up with a plan, and that's verse 3. They say, they tell the church, now granted, this is a massive church meeting. Like they called the membership together. Like it says that they call the full number of the disciples, right? They call the member. It, nothing good ever comes when the leadership is calling a members meeting. Someone messed up. So, yeah, so everybody comes up, but, you know, they've got a bit of a solution. And that's verse 3. It says, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So, again, let me back up. Just consider the scene. There's at least 20,000 people that make up this church in Jerusalem. Thousands are probably widows. There's, it's probably in the thousands the amount of women that are in this specific group. So just imagine that you're being asked to plan and logistically organize a ministry from scratch to feed thousands. On top of that, 
it's in the midst of division and some hurt feelings. So it's already a bit messy. So what's needed? Leadership. What's needed are helmsmen that know what to do. They just, there's a, a, a knowing, a gifting from God that says, hey, um, here's the problem and here's how we need to navigate this course. Here's, here are the obstacles. Here's how we need to steer these things. What was needed was people that with, with some insight and vision. It's like, here's what we need to plan. Here's how we need to prepare. Here's how we need to organize to make sure that all these people get fed the way they're supposed to. What was needed were helmsmen that knew how to rig the sails to figure this thing out. Everybody follow? So Verse 3 actually tells us what was specifically needed in those who lead. Now, we're going to unpack that in a few minutes, what's actually required. First, I want to spend some time on what is not required. Okay? So, here, it does not say that the apostles asked, hey, we need to recruit some people with a burden for geriatric ministry. Didn't say that. It doesn't say that the apostles told the people, hey, listen, we need to get on monster.com, we need to get on indeed.com, and we need to post a job description that says, we're looking for someone with a passion for feeding the hungry. It doesn't say that, does it? Not at all. Those are like first world, modern day conventions or impositions that we throw out there. So like, we're going to hire a children's director. All right, so we want to hire someone that's got a passion for children. Well, that's not wrong. That's not bad. But what I'm saying is that it's superfluous. It really isn't needed. It isn't needed at all. What's needed um, besides that is just simply a passion for Jesus. That's the passion that's needed. Like, like our, our burden and passion as a leader doesn't need to be a specific job or a specific project or a specific ministry or, or, or that kind of thing. I mean, it's fine if you do, but it's not needed. What it's not, what's not needed is to have our passion, our burden limited to a demographic. Children, older people, singles, whatever the case, youth, whatever. Like it, that's, not, that's limiting. What's needed is that a person have a passion for Christ. A burden for the gospel. That's what's, that's what's needed. So true leadership, folks, arises out of a burden and a passion for Jesus. For Jesus. And a person that has a burden and a passion for Jesus can do anything that God asks them to do. Regardless of whether they have a passion or burden for that specific thing. So let me make my case here. In verse 5, we're introduced to Stephen, among others. Stephen is one of those that is appointed to lead this particular care ministry in the church in Jerusalem. Well, if you look forward a little bit to Acts 6, verse 12 and 13, it tells us that religious opponents rise up against Stephen. So he starts facing persecution because of his faith in Jesus. They, they seize him, and they raise up false witnesses against him. They're trying to trump things up against him in order to, uh, to persecute him. And what happens in Acts chapter 7 is that Stephen just talks to his enemies. 
he shares the gospel with his enemies. He, it says there he preaches a sermon. I don't know that it was so much a sermon as him just sitting down. It's like, you know, well, I, I guess you've already made up your mind. You're going to kill me. So let me tell you um, why I believe what I believe. And he spends the entire chapter just sharing the gospel and telling them about the Lord and Christ and who Christ is, who Jesus is, and what Jesus has done and God's purposes. And their response, we read in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, they stone him. They stone him, which is just a brutal, brutal, slow, agonizing way to die. Like you, you, you're sitting there, people are just throwing rocks at you. So you're dying one bruise at a time, one broken bone at a time, a contusion at a time, a little concussion here and worse and worse. And so you didn't happen instantly. This took some time. And as they're stoning Stephen how, Stephen, how does he respond? In verse 60, Acts 7, verse 60, it says that he prays and he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And he dies. So the question is, why in the world was Stephen able and willing to endure persecution and to do so with grace? And it's because he loved Jesus. It's because he loved Jesus. He knew that Jesus loved him, and so he loved Jesus. Stephen knew the truth. He knew the truth. Stephen knew that he was, just like we are, a sinner. He knew he was a sinner. See, when it comes to sin, we're nothing more than like Waffle House hash browns. We are straight up covered, smothered, chunked, and topped in sin, with sin. It's all up on us. It's all up in us. How often do you feel jealousy? Probably the last time you got on Facebook. Ten minutes ago. <laughs> How come they get to sleep in? Like, we, that's, that's sin, is it not? The sense of jealousy? Like, shouldn't we just be happy for someone if they have their own blessing? Should, not, should we not be content with whatever it is the Lord gives us? How, um, how often do you daydream about getting even with someone? <laughs> Any of you have children? <laughs> You're married? Are you breathing? You have neighbors. <laughs> like, we daydream about getting, I mean, we, we fantasize, man, I just wait till I get in front of them next time. And you know you won't. But you fantasize, like, aha, this is what I'll say or this is what I should have said. And you play it out. And you have arguments in your own head against a person. They're not even there physically. You, you fight it out. It's amazing. You always win in your head, right? Well, like, our thing is not that we should, like, want someone's ruin. We should be like Stephen. Lord, please don't hold that sin against them. If they've done something, instead of fantasizing about slashing their tires, like, God, just please, you, you don't hold that sin against them. So we should be people of mercy. How, uh, how often do you say hurtful things to someone that you love? Man, you know what a word, an ill word can do to someone's soul? That really is murder. You can murder someone's soul just like that with one word. Just utterly render someone lifeless with one word. 
And so we're not supposed to be using words that destroy or tear down, but we should be using words that build people up. And like right now, everyone's like all concerned about the fires in California. And we should be. I don't want to see anything burned down, really. But you know, the, the worst fire in the world is the fire that we cause through our lies and our gossip and our slander and our self-absorbedness. Our pride, our lust, our sexual immorality, like all of that. Our lack of faithfulness, our, all of that. Like we are scorching our spouse, our children, our neighbor, our coworkers. I mean, we're arsonists when it comes to sin. Kind of, and we just like playing with sparks all the time. The world is on fire because of our bigotry and our prejudice. Because we're running around causing division and havoc. That's sin. Man, the, we are burning each other down. And, and if the damage that we do to one another isn't bad enough, and it's shockingly awful what we say and do to one another, if that's not bad enough, that's actually not what's the worst part of our sin. The worst part of our sin is that each and every sinful word, act, deed, attitude, behavior, all of it is an infinite offense against all holy, almighty, almighty God. Every last bit of it mocks the name of God. It's, it literally is to slap God in the face with every lie, every little bit of gossip, every little like attitude of jealousy is to reach up and just slap Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. Just slapping him, just slapping him. And that's why Scripture gives that warning in Romans. He says, the wages of sin is death. Like the consequence of sin, that's why it's so bad. It's because everything is an offense against Almighty, All-Holy God. So each and every sin demands, rightly demands judgment and punishment from God. Retribution, which is ultimately Eternal separation from his goodness, eternal separation from his glory, eternal separation from the, the goodness of God. So that's what we deserve. But Jesus, you've got to love Jesus, right? But Jesus, despite our own sin, despite all that mess that goes through our head, all the stuff that we actually do, despite all of that, Jesus loves each and every one of us, and he loves us so much that he was willing to die in our place. And so that's why we sing about the gospel, and that's why we sing about the cross. Jesus goes to the cross. He took your sin off of you, put it upon himself, and paid the price so that you wouldn't have to. He paid the cost so that you would not have to pay the cost. So that instead of getting the eternal, the, the eternal damage of sin, that you may have eternal life in its place. So that, that's the, the glory of the cross. His shed blood pays the price so that we don't have to. That we don't have to. And now all who believe in the name of Jesus, we are forgiven. We're spared. We receive grace. Grace. Our sin is removed as far as the east is from the west. It actually tells us in Isaiah that God then takes his, our sin and he hides it behind his back so that he doesn't see it anymore. Amazing thing. God doesn't want to see our sin. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He says, I'll see it all on Jesus. Jesus will pay for it so I don't have to see it on you. That's the cross. And that's the news. That's the message that Stephen knew so well that transformed him into a person not only able to endure persecution, but to do so with grace and mercy toward the ones that were stoning him. 
It was all because he knew how much Jesus loved him. And so therefore, in turn, he loved Jesus. And that is where leadership begins. Leadership begins with a passion and a love for Christ because he first loved us. Stephen's passion was Jesus. So it didn't matter what he was asked to do. Hey, help start a ministry to feed ladies. Or, hey, start an orphanage. Or lead the children's area. Or, or start a foundation, an organization to reach Central America. Like, what was specifically asked was actually ultimately irrelevant. Because his passion was not about one of those things individually. His passion was Jesus. Wanting people to know Jesus. Wanting to further the name of Christ. So it didn't matter if he had a passion for all of that. The person who is led by the love of God and a love for God can do anything and lead anything that God asks them to lead. Anything. In Christ, folks, we can do amazing things. We can lead amazing things if we abide in Christ and he abides in us. Now, here's the thing, just so that no one misunderstands, because some people get freaked out. Oh, I don't know how to start an orphanage. Okay, not everyone's asked to start an orphanage or a missions organization. Not everyone's asked to lead a church or even a, mi- a specific ministry within a church, right? But here's the thing. All of us, all of us in Christ are asked to lead. All of us. Are we called to lead ourselves? Yeah. Are we called to lead ourselves in a way that our lives sync up with Jesus more and more? Absolutely. At the very least, you have to lead yourself. Difficult? Yeah. Isn't that the hardest thing to do probably? Just leading your own self. Like, how hard is it to put the Cheetos down, get off the couch, and just go to the gym? It's, it's about near impossible, right? And that's easy. And that's easy compared to actually leading my heart and mind each and every day, all day long, to sync up with Jesus, sync up with God's Word, right? But I got to lead myself, because if I don't lead myself, who's going to do it for me? Are you, can you lead me to lead myself? No, like I, I either lead myself or it doesn't happen. All right, husbands, if you're married, you, if you're married, you are called to lead your wife. Boy, I don't have the gift of leadership, irrelevant. I don't have much skill or talent at it, irrelevant. The very role of being a husband is to lead the wife. Are you a parent? You have children. You have to lead them. You want to let them lead themselves? Probably not. Probably not. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. You have to lead your children if you're a parent. If you're a follower of Christ. Our role in this world is to lead other people to know Jesus. Teach, share, witness, be a fisherman. In Christ, we're all called to lead in all sorts of ways, in all sorts of places, and at times, we're called to leadership, and every single one of us who are a follower of Christ can flourish and thrive as a leader so long as one thing is true of us. 
we love him. If Jesus is the passion of your life, you can do anything that the Lord asks you to do. Lead yourself in the right direction. Lead your wife in the right direction. Lead your children in the right direction. Lead someone to Christ. You can do amazing things in this world if your passion is for Christ. And so I'll ask that question. Do you love Jesus? Do you love the Lord? Can you say, I love him who loved me first. I love him who gave his life for me. I love him who sacrificed himself that I may have eternal life. I love him who doesn't see my fault anymore. I love him. We can do anything that God asks. We can lead anything if we love Jesus. So, that's where leadership begins. True leadership, good leadership, the kind that really gets stuff done, that's where it begins. It begins with a love for the Lord. But then what? Well, after that, we got to rig the sails. We got to rig the sails of our life in order to grow as a leader. And we rig the sails by growing into two things that are spelled out in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. It says two things. We need to be of good repute. And number two, we need to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So, to be of good repute refers to having a good reputation because we have a good character. That's what it means. Good reputation because of good character. Now, here's what the world teaches. This is why I say, like, much much of what the world says about leadership is just dribble, half-baked, ill-conceived, not helpful, right? Because what the world says is required for good leadership is a certain personality. You've got to be an extrovert. You've got to be a people person. You've got to be gregarious. Right? You, gotta, you, you just got to be a bigger-than-life type person that woos others. No, you don't. That's not what's needed. Like a certain personality style or type is not what's needed for leadership. What else does the world say about leadership? Oh, it's all a matter of intelligence or it's all a matter of creativity. It's the person with the really good ideas. That's the leader. No, it's not. No. The kind of leadership that does anything in this world that's of any true value is just simply leadership that reflects the character of Jesus. It's good character that reflects Christ. You know, a person can't lead, at least not well, if they're hot-tempered, ill-tempered, or bad-tempered. They just can't. A person can't lead well if they're going around just casting stones and judgment at other people. A person can't lead well, or at least not in the right direction, if they're running around hurting people and causing division. I mean, raise your hand if you want to follow a meathead. Anybody? No, none of us want to follow a meathead. No one wants us to follow anyone that has such a severe, ugly, distorted character. No, leadership is, is about becoming more and more like Jesus, right? So a good leader, we need to jettison. Jettison like sinful attitudes and begin to embrace the character of Christ. So humility, meekness, joy, gentleness, faithfulness. We need to be growing as people of good repute. So the other thing that it says, so that's the first sale we got to rig. We got to rig up, become more like Jesus. The second sale is to be full of the Spirit and of wisdom. To be full of the Spirit just simply means that we're being led by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. To be led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in Scripture is referred to as our counselor. Our counselor. He provides guidance. He speaks the Holy Spirit, not in it, 
he. He's the third member of the Trinity, right? He speaks to our inner being, to our inner being. So good leaders are those who follow God's leading. That's, that's what's a bit like paradoxical about being a leader. Good leaders are simply just good followers of Christ, of the Holy Spirit, of the Lord. Good leaders follow God's leading, and that is what it means to be full of wisdom. Who's a person who's wise? The person who's listening to the Lord. I mean, is there any other kind of wisdom? No, it's just be, being full of wisdom just simply means I am listening to the Holy Spirit and I'm letting the Holy Spirit guide me. And it's in listening to the Holy Spirit that we then get a sense of discernment in this world. It's in listening to the Holy Spirit that we get some insight in this world. So this world is foggy, right? Well, how, if we're a ship, am I supposed to get from port A to port B if it's just fog all the time? Like, because as a leader, I'm supposed to have a strategy for how to get from here to there. But well, you can't have a strategy if there's no clarity. And the Holy Spirit provides clarity. And then we can strategize, oh, well, now that I can see the terrain, now that I see the problems and the obstacles, now that I know what's this, now that I know how it is that the Lord wants me to get from here to there, or this ministry, or this church, or this whatever, now that there's clarity, we can have a strategy. But that kind of wisdom only happens if we're led by the Spirit and we're listening. We have, so a good leader has an attentive ear to the Holy Spirit. We're listening and we're saying yes to the Holy Spirit, which means that we have to stop listening to the world and stop listening to like our own sinful impulses, say no to that. Lord, what do you want me to do? How do we want me to get there? What should I do? And it's just always listening. So leadership, I mean, just again, I, I just I like using illustrations. I, leadership is just sailing; it's just it's steering the ship through this world. That's what leadership is. It's being a helmsman. So if you want your life, if you want your marriage, if you want your family, your children, if you want your uh, your neighborhood or your community, if you want our church or if you want a ministry to go in the right direction, you got to rig the sails the right way. Which means growing as a person who imitates and reflects the character of Jesus. It means growing as a person who is full of the spirit and of wisdom, being led by the voice of God in our life. That's what it means. And we have to do this. And you know why? Because if we don't step up as good leaders, in the vacuum, bad leadership always steps in. Always. Always. When good leadership is absent... Every time bad leadership steps in. Every single time. And so just so that you know, because I know everyone's getting excited, I'm going to grow as a leader, right? Just know ahead of time, this is straight up hard work. It's complete, total hard work. It's labor. Everyone wants to be a leader. And here's what I've learned. Everyone wants to be a leader, but no one wants to lead. Everyone wants the title. No one wants the responsibility. Everyone wants the status, but they're unwilling to sacrifice. And that's what leadership ultimately is. It is selfless sacrifice and servitude for the good of other people. And that's hard. That's hard. It's hard work. And you know why? Because the winds of this world are always, always working against us. We're perpetually and always in a headwind. Always, the winds of this world are always 
coming at to keep us from going to where we're supposed to get to. So I said earlier, I'm no sailing expert. I'm not Andy Bernard, so I, I don't know much about sailing. A couple of office people just referenced that. All right, anyway, thank you, two of you. All right. But I do know that it's possible to go windward. Now, here's the thing about it. Again, we're at port A, trying to go to port B. But there's a wind coming from port B. So how in the world can we get there? Now, it's possible to get there, but here's why this is so difficult. You can't get there in a straight line. You have to zigzag your way there. See, when, when you're hitting windward, at best, you can only move at a 40-degree angle in that direction. That is the maximum that you can head in that direction. So what happens is a helmsman has to point the ship maybe at 40 degrees, rig the sails just right, and you go for a little way in that direction, but you can't go too far or you go too far off course. So then you have to turn the ship at that 40-degree angle the other way, re-rig the sails, and go that way for a little while. But again, not so much. And so you have to do this back and forth, and you zigzag your way. What that means is that true leadership, we can't be people who wanting constant gratification, instant gratification. We have to roll up our sleeves and do the work all the time. Where's the wind? Where's the wind? Which way are we going? Which way are we going? Rig the sails. Rig the sails. Turn the ship. Turn the ship. Where's the wind? Where's the wind? Rig the sails. Rig the sails. Turn the ship. Turn the ship. That's what it is. It's an entire lifelong process. That's the port is at the end of life. Port B is at the end of life. So you're navigating every day. Every day. Your life won't get there in a straight line. So you've got to navigate the zigzag. If you want your life to go in the right, lead your life the right way, you've got to zigzag every day. Husbands, in marriage, it's the same thing. It's not just, we had one conversation two weeks ago and everything's hunky-dory now. No, the winds change. (laughs) Parents, you know this to be true, right? How many, do you just tell your kid one thing one time and you're good to go? That's a hurricane. Rig the sails. No, no. Walk the plank. Like, <laughs> it's work. So you have to constantly rig, constantly rig. That's what being a helmsman does. So a ship needs three things, right? Displace water, needs, needs propulsion, needs navigation. I want to apply these three specifically from this text. Start with displacement. What sin do you need to displace out of your life to push away out of your life that you not only not sink, but that you would grow as the leader that you're supposed to be? So for some people, it might be displacing selfishness. Well, leadership is serving others, loving others, helping others. Well, it's hard to lead if I'm more concerned about my comforts and not being inconvenienced. So for some, it might be displacing selfishness. For some, it might be displacing pride. You know, like, the the worst leader is one with an ego. Because people with egos just hurt people. That's all that they do. Leaders with egos hurt people at, at, at their expense, right, for their own personal advancement. That's not helpful. That's not leadership. Right? What was not helpful is a leader who just wants, hey, look at me. I'm going to do what's nice only if I get credit. Here, like, here's parenting 101. My kids are younger, but they're, they're soon, 
going to be getting to that age where they don't want to listen to me or Jamie. All right. So I want their life to go a certain way, but they're not going to listen to me. So what I need is Brent Honeycutt and Krista Honeycutt and others to, hey, hey, talk to Edie. Could you help me out with this? And Edie's going to get to the point where she may listen to them more than me. I don't care if I get the credit for that. What I care about is that my Edie goes the right direction. So a leadership is not about kudos and praise. So ego has n- plays no role in good leadership. It's the end product that matters. For some of us, what we got to jettison and push aside is the sin of procrastination. Man, we live with no sense of urgency whatsoever. Man, we are just complacent. Just hunky-dory. No, everything's fine. No problem. Husbands, you need to lead your wife and you need to lead your marriage yesterday. Yesterday. You cannot. See, leaders don't make assumptions. So a husband cannot make assumptions that everything's hunky-dory. Because I tell you, I've been, at, I've been in ministry for I, I don't know how many years it is now. If, I don't want to count. Too many years. And I hear the same thing so often. I get a call. There's a couple. The, the marriage is in crisis. And I tell you, 99% of the time, the husband's like, I had no idea there was a problem. It happens so much. So, husbands, I'm asking you to be proactive and be preemptive. That's what leadership is. Like, all we, we're sitting around with no urgency, complacent, and then all we ever do is just react and respond. Like, everything's on the back end. Like, no, be preemptive. That's what leadership does. It's always praying, Lord, help me, having conversations with the wife. So, husbands, I say, go home this evening, sit down with your wife, and look her in the eye and actually say, all right, please be completely honest. Is everything okay? Are you okay? Is your heart okay? Is, your, is life okay? Is our marriage okay? Please tell me now so we can lead this the right way before the wheels come off. It's the same thing with our children. For our, As parents, we have this tiny little window with our kids to influence them. It's tiny. In the grand scheme, it is tiny. And if we don't step in preemptively to lead their little hearts, I guarantee you that bad leadership is going to step in and will. So you got to live with an urgency. I don't want my Edie or my Ellie or my Emmett or my E to go down any bad path. I have to lead them, teach them, instruct them, guide them, explain, talk with, not at, shepherd their heart. I have to lead them. So there's probably one of those sins or maybe many others that you need to kind of just push away and displace out of your life and replace with Christ-like character. What about propulsion? Because a ship needs to go forward, right? So for us, the wind is always the same. It's Jesus. The wind that pushes us forward is the gospel. That, that is what pushes us, right? I just think that in our text, there's a little bit of extra turbo. And I think we see it in verse 7. It's, it, it tells us there, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. So there's a problem in the church. We got to fix it. People step up to lead it. And as a result of the leading, what happens? People come to know Christ. 
the church is furthered. The kingdom of God is advanced. This is what happens when God's people step up and do the very thing that God calls them to do. To lead whatever it is that they're supposed to lead. People come to know Jesus. If you're, if you're an anthemer, like we like to say, that means that you're a note in God's eternal song. And what that text says is that if we all will do our role as that note in God's song, God will use us as that note to add other notes to his anthem. We will get to see and do greater things in this world if we would just step up, step up, step up, rise up together and do the different things that we're supposed to do. Folks, together we will be part of the supernatural, the miraculous, the eternal, and the glorious. We will see and we will do greater things. And what about navigation? So the Holy Spirit is our guide. The Holy Spirit directs us. So this morning I'm asking you what, to listen to the Holy Spirit. And what is God prompting you to do? What, what step would the Holy Spirit have you to take today? So if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, that's step number one. That is what matters most. It is simply saying, yes, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I, you gave your life for me. I believe in you. Forgive me of my sin. I give my life to you. I'm going to follow you, Lord. That, that's number one. So maybe the Holy Spirit is knocking on your heart and saying, you need to just accept and embrace Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Beyond that, for some of us, it's time to start leading. Whether it's our life, our marriage, our children, a, a project in the community, some kind of outreach, some kind of service, there's a need with a coworker, there's something, maybe here at the church, there's something God is saying, um, I need some people to step up and I'm tapping you on the shoulder. So is there something that the Holy Spirit is asking you specifically to do, a need for you to relieve? There's a problem that, that God wants to use you to solve in this world. And then there's those of us in the room that, okay, yep, you know what? It's not that he's asking you to lead a specific ministry or project right now, but he's asking you to be in training. Because every Christian needs to be in training. We all need to be serving and volunteering in some way at church or in the community and getting ready, learning to roast, because the day may very well come when God says, hey, Monica, want you to do this. Hey, Kelly, I want you to do this. Hey, Tom, I want you to do this. So we always need to be preparing, right? Always need to be growing as imitators of Christ, learning what it means to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom constantly. So what step is the Holy Spirit asking you to take today? I'm going to finish with this one story, one of my, my favorite personal stories from way back. We're going into way back machine. Uh, 1994, I got to witness the coolest propulsion system I've ever seen. I was down at Cocoa Beach, Florida on spring break. Don't judge me. <laughs> Cocoa Beach is right south of Cape Canaveral where NASA is. Turns out that the week that we were there, NASA was launching a Delta rocket, and it was a nighttime launch. Well, man, I, I got excited because I grew up wanting to be an astronaut. And, I mean, an aer, you know, aerospace engineer, that was kind of originally what I wanted to do. But anyway, so I'm like, this is cool. So we were on, you know, at the hotel at the beach. And that night we all go out on the beach together. And then we had to look up the coastline. Well, Cape Canaveral, the way their launch pad is, it's right on the water. 
Like, it's right on the beach. So we had a direct line of sight. But here's the problem. It was so far. If, it, if the launch pad had been one foot further, we would not have been able to see it. Um, it was, you know, they light up the rocket. But it was so far away, it's like, is that it? Like, it was, like, so small. And I'm getting disappointed already. I'm getting ready for disappointment. Man, this would be so cool to see it oh, so far away. Oh, well. So then all of a sudden, there's this little tiny, like, launch, right? Like, 10, 9, to count down, and little sparkle. <laughs> it's like, yay. I mean, it's, it's like a sparkler. Like, there's nothing exciting about this. Well, that little sparkle... <laughs> It started to intensify, it started to quiver, and then this thing starts moving. And I'm, it is the most spectacular thing my eyes had ever seen. It was frightening. This rocket takes up in the jet, right, the exhaust, the, 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 the flame coming off the back of it. It's just arcing over the Atlantic Ocean. It lit up the entire night sky. It was brighter than day. And I'm not exaggerating. It was like a flash of lightning that lasted minutes. It was the most remarkable thing I have ever seen in my life. And I sat there on that beach, and we were afraid because it was loud, too. We're like, there's no way people in Africa aren't seeing this. There's no way. I've ne- it was amazing. And see, the thing is that as followers of Jesus, when we're propelled by the gospel, folks, we should light up this dark world as much as a Delta rocket lights up a night. And that's what leadership is. Leadership is just having this passion for Jesus and a love for Jesus that ignites us in such a way and propels us in such a way that we light things up, that we shine for the glory of God, that we shine for the good of others. So I know that this world, this is what it needs. It needs leadership. The kind of leadership that only comes from passion for the Lord Jesus and a love for him. The world needs leaders who keep our eyes on him, that he is our vision, that his presence is our light. The world needs us to be helmsmen that imitate him and are full of the spirit and full of wisdom. That's what the world needs. That's what we need. That's what our church needs. It's what Andrew needs. Arnett County and Wake County and Johnson County, North Carolina. It's what we need. We need helmsmen. So what sin do you need to displace? Be propelled by the gospel of grace. And listen to the Holy Spirit. What is he asking you to do today? I'm going to ask you all to just close your eyes. Bow your head. I want to just ask you to respond in the privacy of your own heart. What is God leading you to do right now? So, is he calling you to just say yes to the gospel? So you may be here and you've never, from the depths of your heart, committed your life to the Lord. If that's you, please say yes to Jesus. Give your life to him. There's some of us in this room who we are believers. We are followers of Christ. But we haven't been rigging the sails very well, so we haven't been leading our children or leading a ministry or leading ourselves very well. So repent. It's okay. God loves you. Just repent of that shortcoming. 
and say, Lord, just give me the strength and the wisdom to get head the right direction, to do what I'm supposed to do. For some in here, God may be asking you very specifically to do something. Hey, I, I, I want you to lead this. I need you, want you to be a part of this solution to address this need in the community, in the church. So if that's you, say yes to the Holy Spirit. For some of us, it's that we just need to be in training. We need to be reading our Bible and joining a small group and a Bible study and getting involved and just learning to serve and learning what what it would mean maybe possibly one day to, to lead something. What is the Lord asking you to do today? Lord, your love is absolutely stunning and amazing. That you would send your son, that you would crush him on that cross, that we would be liberated from darkness. Jesus, your, your love is exquisite and extraordinary. That you would pour your life out on that cross to pay for our sins. We thank you that you not leave us hopeless in our sin, but Lord, you willingly remove that from us by your grace. And you call us just to believe in you and to follow you. And Holy Spirit, you then become our guide, our navigator, to help us to make it through this foggy world, to head in the right direction. You propel us forward. And along the way, you call us to do amazing work in this world. To lead others in the advancement of the gospel. To to be a part of the movement of your love in this world. You invite us to be part of that. To lead in that and serve in that. So Lord, I ask that you would bolster us now. That you would give us the right vision. That you would be our vision who lights our path. That we may go in the right direction. And do all that you ask us to do. And I ask that you would set a blaze, a love in us, a passion for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.